right, second Pod Drop 2024. I'm looking forward to this one. So we've got Tim Spiller, who's Professor of Quantum Information Technologies at the University of York. Tim is also the Director of the York Centre for Quantum Technologies and also the Director of the UK Quantum Communications Hub. And he's been in that role for the last 10 years. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. Um, we're going to hear a bit about the UK strategy for quantum. What do you reckon, Steve? Yeah, it's going to be a good one. The big announcement from last month or a couple of months ago from UK, the big investment from the government. So we'll find out from Tim more about how that money is going to be used and what's going to be different from the previous investments. Okay, let's get into it. Hello and uh, welcome, Tim. Thank you very much for joining us for this uh, conversation today. Let's start with a, a bit of background. Obviously, you've got quite an illustrious career in and out of academia and the enterprise space. So if you could walk us through, that'd be a great start for, for our discussion. Yeah. Okay. Quick potted history. So I did an undergraduate degree in physics and then I did a PhD actually in theoretical particle physics. So if you like, I'm a trained theoretical physicist, but, but once I'd done particle physics, I then decided it was actually perhaps easier to interact and find out about quantum stuff that was being done experimentally if you worked more locally with people. So so I spent nearly 10 years as an academic doing theoretical research, but closely aligned with experimental research on superconducting quantum devices. So this was rather before they were called superconducting qubits. But anyway, I was one of the people who worked on stuff like that before it became working quantum technology. And so I did that for about 10 years. But following that, I, I ended up getting a job at Hewlett Packard Labs. So I, I then spent almost 15 years in, in industry. So I made the transition from academia to industry. And in HP Labs, there was scope for doing your own stuff at the time, but also providing consultancy and support in all manner of other things. So it was quite an opportune time because I moved to HP in 1995, which was exactly the time that Shaw's and Grover's algorithms came out and people were getting interested in the potential for quantum computing and other quantum technologies. So, so in parallel with being a kind of theory consultant within HP Labs, I also then started building up a, a quantum information and quantum technology activity within HP Labs. And so I developed that and we ended up with quite a significant group at the end of it. And in 2009, I moved back to academia. So it, I didn't have a plan. It, it, it was never a, a concrete plan to say, yes, I'm going to go and work in industry for a time and then go back to academia. The job at HP looked very interesting and looked like I could I could contribute very well. And I didn't know how long I was going to stay there. And in the end, 15 years, I probably would have guessed it might have been less than that when I started. But anyway, I moved back to academia in 2009. And... I actually joined the University of Leeds to head up the quantum information group there. And 
this was at the time when the UK was getting more interested in quantum technologies and their future potential. So I'm sure we'll come back to that and talk more about it in later on in this discussion. But at the time, the UK was starting their interest in quantum technologies. And so the next few years, there were discussions. And then in the end, the UK launched their national program in 2014. But there was quite a lot going on before that in, in preparation for it. And as it happened in 2014, I also moved, which wasn't great timing, but we managed it. And so I moved from the University of Leeds to the University of York, and also at that time took up a significant role in the UK National Quantum Technologies Program. So, uh, and, and I've been there since, so I will have done uh, 10 years doing that later this year. So, so that's a quick overview of my whole career. It's been a not an equal split, but it's been a significant time in industry alongside working in academia. Tell me a bit more about the Quantum Communications Hub. I guess that's what you mean about your role in the, in the UK quantum domain that you've been focused on. Is, has that been the tenure that you've had and how would you summarise what's been achieved over that time? Yeah, well, it, it, let me add add one or two things in, into the equate. So the, the UK... I think took careful note of what was happening worldwide in in quantum technologies and the way things were developing. So in 2013, it was decided that the UK would have a UK national quantum technologies program. And at the time, George Osborne was the chancellor in a coalition government, and he managed to find whatever it was 270 million pounds initially in his back pocket that was put aside as new money so i think it's important to to understand that that when the uk said they wanted to start a quantum technologies program what they didn't do was just go to the uk ri or epsrc funding at the time and just ring fence part of what was already there and say right that's going to be for quantum tech there was a genuine injection of new money to set up a program and so what we were told was this new program is going to focus on technology quantum technology development it's not it's not replacement money or whatever for the research in quantum whatever that you've been doing over the last 30 years that funding will continue through EPSRC and so on. So you are still expected to do basic quantum research funded through the usual channels. But on top of that, the UK wants to set up a program to turn that basic quantum science into new quantum technologies. And so that was the model behind setting up the, the UK national program. And so it was handed over to EPSRC, certainly to run the academic part of the UK national program, whereas Innovate UK has run the industry part of it. But in, in the academic, what it was decided was to bring together all the expertise we had in the UK. It was sensible to establish very large collaborations that were called hubs. And so they the, there was, a, if you like, a competition set up to, to decide what those would be. And that was run and through 2014 it was turned over pretty quickly and the national program started at the end of 2014 
with four large collaborative hubs and so the way those hubs were set up were I, I guess technology focused in the sense that there was one that was focused on computing there was one that was focused on imaging there was one that was focused on sensing and there was one that was focused on communications which pretty much covers the whole spectrum of possible technologies and all the sectors that they could work in i lead the quantum communications hub so i ended up as director of that particular strand and the program was initially set up for five years and so all of us were appointed to our hub director roles and hub roles for five years and there was a uh, I'll call it a renewal uh, of those hubs in the sense that we can talk about what happens next later but there was a relatively light touch renewal of the hubs for a further five years and so towards the end of this year the four hubs in their specific areas so so we can talk about the the quantum communications hub I'll come back to that in just a second but just to point out that at the end of the 10 years later this year we'll have done 10 years worth of R&D and technology development there's go it won't be a light touch refresh there are going to be significant changes so the government made uh, in in the budget uh, in in uh, the early part of 2023 a commitment was made that there would be a continuation of the UK national program. And just to give you a feel for numbers, in the first 10 years of the national program, 2014 to 2024, the total budget, which includes external investment, money from industry, money from investors into quantum companies in the UK, the total budget for the national program over 10 years was about 1 billion. And the number that has been discussed for the second 10 years of the national program is 2.5 billion. So there is a major markup in in the investment that will go into quantum technologies in the future compared to what we've had over the first 10 years. So it, there is going to be an expansion and certainly from the academic led part of the UK national program, there's going to be a major refresh on the hub situation. So there, EPSRC are currently running a competition. We don't know what the outcomes will be on the next phase of the national program. So we know there will be new hubs that will start 1st of December 2024. We just don't know what they will be yet because that competition is still ongoing. But it's not a straightforward light touch refresh. It's a whole new competition for new hubs. And I think that's sensible because the technologies are evolving and it, and so just hanging on to the same four technology sectors and keeping going i think it's time for a refresh so it'll look good and i think it will be very helpful to have to have a whole new set of hubs that go forward into phase three of the national program so so that's the kind of whole history the quantum communications hub is obviously something that was set up to focus on quantum communications and because because we were told you should be developing technologies within the hub you shouldn't be just doing some more of your basic research to underpin things we we looked at the most 
technologically advanced aspects in quantum communications uh, at that time. And that was just quantum key distribution and quantum random number generation. I think those were the two most advanced aspects with respect to technology in the quantum communications arena. So those are the things that we have basically focused on for for the first 10 years of the national program in quantum communications. I'm sure we're going to talk more about what's in the future and where it's going. But if you like, I can give a bit of an overview of what we've done in the first 10 years and what we've achieved, what we've, if you like, passed on and what's been challenging, what's still to be done. And then we can look, then we can look more towards the future. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm very keen and excited to go through those topics with you now. Um, first of all, you, you mentioned the budget. Do you know roughly where that puts us on a global scale? I know that France is increasing investment. Obviously, there's a big investment in China, the US, India, perhaps. We're still in the top five, do you think? Oh, I'm pretty sure we're in the top five. I'm pretty sure the biggest spenders on the world scale are China and the US. And I don't have the figures and the fig it's always hard to get the total figures anyway, I think, including all aspects. But I think it's fair to say that the UK investment has been very good. And in terms of just total size of spend, it, it is up there. It's not as big as what has been invested in the US or China, but obviously they're bigger nations with bigger economies anyway. So you might expect some level of proportion. I think the one thing to say about the UK program, and it's been much admired for this worldwide, is that it has been very coordinated. So the hubs have been big academic led projects, but have also included industry partners. And so they've been coordinated within whichever sector it is. So for me, it's quantum communications. We've coordinated all of the technology R&D in quantum communications effectively across the UK and Innovate UK have been funding a whole sequence of sets of projects that if you like take the work of the hubs and push it further towards commercialization and they've also coordinated the way they've done that so they funded baskets of projects that have pursued either quantum computing or quantum communications or so on and so there has been significant coordination and I think that has been much admired from elsewhere and I think it's also been the st stimulus for some other countries to set up national programs that have actually followed on from from ours so I think we've been seen as a as quite a role model which given some of the UK history about exploiting basic science we've done the science and elsewhere in the world has been the place to exploit it I think this time this is an example where the UK has actually done rather well and we've got it right and I think we've been admired for that so overall I, we're not the biggest spenders in the world but I think we are we can claim to be very well coordinated in the UK national program and I think that's been really beneficial yeah, it's almost as if the, the number that is touted as the investment is, if you looked at the overall investment, including from public private sector as well, then it would be perhaps a different story. And it's the hubs that enables that, I guess. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's always true. I think that the U.S., for example, it in, invests more than we do. So I was actually in, on a visit to the U.S. in in November last year, and you go to some of their national labs, and they they clearly have bigger budgets than we do. But that doesn't mean they're way ahead in terms of what they're producing. It means they can follow up on things that we don't have the scope to cover necessarily. But as long as you focus on the most important things, then I think you can still compete with people who've got bigger budgets. And and I do think from the US side, they look across at us and wish they had that level of coordination. But I think it's I think it's much more difficult in, in a country that's the size of the US with different time zones and so on. It's not so easy to collaborate with someone else anywhere in the US. Whereas in the UK, it's pretty straightforward to collaborate with any other group in any other university or company anywhere in the UK. So so I think we we do have a benefit from being smaller in that sense. It's easier to keep a tighter collaboration when you are a smaller country. So I think you know, flippantly, the US has more money, but we have more coordination. I wanted to, to ask about the evolution of the, during those 10 year period with, for example, the beginning, it sounds like a lot of academic partners and probably big industry companies cooperating, but probably at the beginning of those 10 years, there's probably no quantum startups or small companies that are looking to innovate in the edge of the technology stack. So I wonder how it evolved in terms of like startups popping up and other collaborators other than big industry players and big academic institutions. Was there an evolution at all? Yes. And I think we would claim within the hub to contributed to the successes. So I think it's fair to say that when the national program started in 2014, there weren't that many quantum startups in the UK. There were one or two and there were people also thinking about it. There are now pretty much 10 years on uh, very many and I think that the UK is now deemed to be quite a healthy place in which to invest and to start up companies. I mean it's not the only place in the world obviously I think California still and Silicon Valley still ranks very highly but then so does Canada now and there are various places in Europe that I think are also trying to stimulate startups but that that has been a growth and I'm sure if you look at the growth of startups worldwide then in in the quantum area there's been a significant uh, jump certainly when we started we had the big players in quantum communications involved in our hub and Two of the big ones are clearly BT, who are a service provider, and Toshiba, who build stuff. And they've been involved all the way through. And their roles have evolved, and we can talk about that in terms of where it's going, commercialization, in a while. But it's certainly the case that I think the spectrum of industry partners has evolved. And I think Innovate have been very helpful there because the national program over the 10-year period has had a growing fraction of its budget devoted towards industry-led projects. So in the very beginning, because the hubs hadn't done much in the first year, there wasn't 
a huge incentive for Innovate to have a massive budget for industry-led projects at that point. And so it was relatively small. They did start competitions fairly early on, but they the, the budgets were quite small. Now, the Innovate budget, I think, is comparable in spend to that on the hubs and so on. So it's grown significantly. And Innovate have been good in the sense that some of the industry-led projects have effectively been led by a startup that was really just starting up. And so they've been able to get going through Innovate UK funded projects and kickstart, if you like, their technology, whatever technology it's been. So I think, and that I think is part of the coordination that that has been part of the UK national program. So it's that kind of thing that has been much admired from from elsewhere in the world because Innovate have in effect been a tech transfer route for stuff that's come out of the hub and at the same time they've facilitated startups starting up from close to zero to actually ending up then pulling in major investment from external investors so so it's all worked rather well and a lot of it I think was by design so so that's good to see when you you have a plan and 10 years on it, it's all progressing very well so so if i go back to the quantum communications hub so as i say in the very beginning the most technologically advanced things were quantum key distribution and quantum random number generation and so although we did some work and we're still doing some work on what I would call next generations of quantum communication. So things that go beyond just basic QKD. And we come back to that in due course. Most of what we've done in the first 10 years has focused on QKD and QRNGs. Now in the QKD, well, now 10 years on, what we're telling you is that we are addressing all length scales. So we're looking at, at QKD on short, intermediate, and the longer term distances. So I'll talk about the first two first. So in, in the first five years of the hub, our QKD focus was on, on two things, really. It was very short range, free space, QKD. So in the future, you may have a, a, a quantum transmitter in your phone and there may be a quantum receiver in the wall and you may exchange key over a short distance with your employer or the government or the health service or your bank or whatever so there's the potential for you know we've called it consumer qkd in in the past there's the potential for that very short range free space for individuals if you move up in distance then the obvious thing to do is to piggyback off the fiber network that we already have. And you can certainly do that. You can send, even though the quantum signals are obviously very low level in terms of electromagnetic intensity, you can send quantum electromagnetic signals down ordinary optical fibers and receive them 50 or even 100 kilometers away. So you can run QK over conventional fiber networks. And so in the first five years, we focused on 
on these two things short range free space and intermediate around city and between city distances using fiber and we developed technologies in both of those areas and pushed push things forward and we can come back to where that's going commercialization wise but i in addition to those length scales obviously if you want to go worldwide and you want to get across large areas of ocean which you can do conventional undersea communications through fiber but undersea cables apart from the short ones all have built-in amplification i mean that's the way they work you send optical comm signals and they get amplified every every so often uh, and that's how they can get across the atlantic or whatever you cannot send quantum signals through those optical amplifiers they simply don't work if you amplify a quantum signal you basically trash it so you can't use any runs of optical fiber that have built-in amplification and you do need some sort of amplification to get across large distances of fiber and so if you want to do if you want to do the very largest worldwide distances then the way to go certainly for some forms of quantum communication seems to be via satellites and so in the second five years of the hub we have been developing technology that will go on a small CubeSat that will hopefully be launched. I think it, it's going to end up being the beginning of 2025 now. So we've got an extension. We've got a one-year extension on that bit of the current hub. So we can run beyond the end of this year for one more year. And so we're hoping to launch a, a small CubeSat, which will have a well have two quantum transmitters on it and we will be looking to receive those quantum signals and demonstrate qkd from a small satellite which is like the size of a large shoebox or a couple of shoeboxes stuck together we will be doing qkd from there to a ground-based uh, quantum receiver and so that if you like means we will have covered qkd technologies at all distance scales from the very shortest ones to the very longest ones and clearly fiber sits in the middle Every, everything you want to do around a country you probably do in fiber but if you want very short range stuff for consumers they want the freedom i think of having free space stuff connecting to their handheld devices and if you want the very longest distances you've got free space to and from uh, satellites let me just say one bit about QRNGs and then I can mention some notable successes. So with quantum random numbers are very appealing because they give you the promise that if they are genuinely quantum random numbers, that obviously they will be random, but also they will be unique in that if you have two separate quantum random number generators, you can prepare them identically, build them as identically as you possibly can. They will never produce the same quantum random sequence and so you have a promise that 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 your random sequence is not only random it's unique and for many applications you want that uniqueness guaranteed as well as just the randomness and so that appeal has always been there because of the and and this is built into nature 
this randomness is and, and the uniqueness comes from the very nature of quantum physics. So it, it's not something you can get around by any kind of hacking. It, it's the way nature works. So that's very nice. In the first phase of the hub, so that's 2014 to 19, we did some work further developing quantum random number generators. And we kind of tech transferred that, if you like, at that point. So this is where Innovate UK comes in. And if, as I mentioned, they're a kind of tech transfer route. So Innovate UK then funded a very substantial further developmental project, which was led by the National Physical Laboratory and contained still expertise from our hub in terms of academic expertise, but it contained essentially every company in the UK that is producing QRNGs. And so NPL have led this project on assuring quantum randomness, which has run for the last few years. So that's one example of, I would say, a success of our phase one hub in that we tech transferred uh, quantum randomness and, and that's now at the assurance stage. There will be more interesting stuff to come on quantum randomness in the future for sure because there will be nicer ways of generating quantum randomness based on entanglement and so on which will give you even better ways of giving the assurance that it genuinely is quantum randomness that you're providing so so you know that is all progressing very nicely if i go back to other successes that I'd like to highlight that, that the hub has achieved so far, then I think I would point to the handheld stuff has been developed to the point now where we're putting that forward for tech transfer, if you like. So I think we've shown that in principle, you can do QKD from something which is about the size of a credit card that could clearly go in the form factor of a phone. Uh, as a transmitter and it would use the phone's computing power to do all of the supporting control and data whatever so we've shown that works and that is now up for tech transfer in terms of what really has tech transferred i mentioned the qrng stuff but i think in particular now it i would say fiber-based trusted node qkd is now tech transferred and it is up to companies and I've mentioned BT and Toshiba already and I'll mention a couple of others shortly but but so after we'd done our work so we built a quantum network both within Bristol and within Cambridge in phase one of the hub and we have connected those two together by borrowing bits of the National Dark Fiber facility which is an EPSRC funded fiber network that runs well i mean it's called a national facility it's actually only really in the south of england but at the, that's a national facility in some people's eyes so so we've utilized fiber where we can get our hands on it and so we've had a, a network running in bristol in cambridge we've connected the two together via london we've also established a link from from the cambridge network that that we established to british telecom their hq adastral park R&D near Ipswich. So we set all of that up and we've shown that can work in collaboration, obviously, with our industry partners. And now this has progressed further to innovate led, sorry, innovate industry led projects that further develop that technology 
and now BT and Toshiba have a small trial commercial QKD network that's operating in, in in and around London and they have trial customers certainly EY was the starting customer but I think HSBC and Amazon are involved as well now in, in fact the episode before this one was a conversation with Andrew Lord so if anybody's listening to this and hasn't listened to that as well then Please go and do so to get the uh, perspective from BT on that trial. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I, we were really pleased when that happened. A, because it shows that progress is being made, but it's it's a success story for us in the hub in that we can now say, well, it's over to the industry partners to, to fully commercialise that. So in that sense, we regard fibre-based trusted node QKD both as a success story for the hub but also it's now something that's tech transferred out. The other thing I would say, which I feel is a significant success story for our hub is, is the support of startups. So KETS is a startup that came out of the University of Bristol during phase one of the hub. And in fact, some of the folk who were the lead people within KETS were originally funded by the hub at the University of Bristol, and they've now joined the company, or in fact, are leaders in the company full time. So, so Cats does chip-based stuff that can support QKD and QRNGs and other forms of quantum communications stuff. So basically, they put optical stuff down on chip, which is clearly the way you've got to go if you want to mass manufacture and, and bring costs down. So, so that's one success story. And we also had significant interaction with New Quantum in Cambridge in the early days, and we supported people that then joined New Quantum. And so we've had a good working relationship with them. And I'm sure each of the hubs will give you the same kind of story that they will point to startups that they've effectively nurtured all the way from the beginning through to them being now genuine companies and probably pulling in major investment from outside as well as from Innovate UK. It's the next step in the value chain, isn't it? That, uh, like you said, it's by design almost, right? That the, the hubs are being designed in that way with the right links to, to industry. Yeah, that's right. So in 2014, when you started, I guess QKD was just getting into field testing ability, probably with BB84 with like dampened signals using basic the, basically the protocol that was proposed in the original state i'm not sure if that's already a fact but what the question is how did you have to change the protocol during the 10 years to make it work over 100 kilometers of fiber and was it still bb84 or did you go to a different protocol uh, yeah to make it uh, take it from theory to engineer at the minute it well i mean there are many variants and things that relate to to bb84 but i for me there are three basic approaches to to qkd and the two that are being used i would say now just about commercially the main one is i'll call it single photon but then i'll immediately contradict myself and say it's not really single photon so if people do bb84 from alice to bob in general, what they send are very weak, coherent pulses that have on average about one-tenth of a photon in them. So about every tenth pulse, you've got a single photon. Very occasionally, you might have a couple. 
and a lot of the time the pulses are empty but people use those kinds of light quantum light signals are very well relatively easy to produce much easier than genuine single photons so in the end we'd like to think we'll replace these weak pulses by single photons from quantum dots or from wherever and, and we'll use those instead but at the minute people use weak pulses because you can basically just take uh, a little laser diode and filter it right right down and in the end you get single photon or less pulses so so that's what people have been using in in almost all and i think almost all of the commercial qkd technology you can buy at the minute is based on those weak pulses and then you have corresponding detectors that can detect those and people do bb84 with other pulses thrown in to confuse eavesdroppers or whatever but basically the concept is still what ben and brassard came up with uh, another approach is so-called continuous variable qkd where you send again weak coherent states but this time you deliberately use the amplitude and phase of the coherent state as your quantum variables and so you can send a selection of coherent states encoding information into the amplitude and phase and, and there are different ways to do that but then you can extract the information at the other end with actually different forms of detectors from those that, that you use in the single photon case but cvqkd is still being developed we're hoping i mean it certainly works through fiber um, and we've done demonstrations of that and as have others in many places around the world we're hoping to put a cv source as well as a single photon type source on our satellite so that we can demonstrate both of these work through free space so that's something for the future that i won't claim it's a success yet i will when the satellite launches and it works but that so that's in in the pipeline so at the minute i would say most things single photon or weak pulse qkd there's a bit of cv qkd going on in the end people would like to use entanglement in the future and that is progressing and we've certainly done some demonstrations of that as have other people but at the minute the commercial stuff you buy from Toshiba or Ketz or ID Quantique or wherever is genuine, generally just weak pulse uh, QKD. So you send weak pulses from one end, let's say Alice, and Bob receives them and measures, and then they can distill a key from that. So over the 10 years, we haven't really changed those protocols. We've put a bit more emphasis on CV QKD as things have gone along but i think in terms of making the technology work better it's been about in improving the the clock rate if you like at which you send the signals improving the detectors and so on so you can simply up the key rate because there will always be loss in fibers and you can't get over that if you're going to use fiber that's already in the ground you know what the loss is pretty much so you have to suffer that in which case the faster you can send things the greater data rate you get so the higher the key rate you will have in the end and i mean the thing is you suffer loss because it simply hits your key rate that's why rather than encoding your information into the quantum signals you use the quantum signals to establish a key and then you can encrypt 
the data that's really important with those keys, but you're not sending that important data in quantum level signals that you may then lose in the fiber. Tim, I was astounded to hear you talk about consumer QKD. It sounds like this is something which is coming out of the second five-year stint as the director of the communications hub. Is, and you said that it's almost ready for tech transfer. Maybe if you could just give a couple of minutes on what that is and the challenges of, of that. Because I imagine, obviously, optical alignment is probably the biggest one, I would think, uh, and miniaturization. Yeah, well, I think those problems can be over. I mean, f for me now, we've pushed it far enough that, that in principle we've shown it can be done. And actually, the biggest problem now is market pull. Do people actually want this? I mean, you can always plug a fiber into your phone and download some key that way. But the idea really is that you'd like to do it more efficiently and without that potential intrusion of plugging something into your device. It's perfectly possible to do pointing and tracking and coordination between a, a, a small transmitter and a receiver in the wall over a meter because you've got the same problem when you think about a satellite and, and a telescope over a much greater distance so the pointing and tracking and synchronization can be done and you can exchange a modest amount of key in a matter of seconds so so that's okay but then the open question for me at the minute is there a market for that do people really want it or does it need to sit around for a, a year or two until the market decides what it wants. I mean, at, at the minute, I think for a couple of years now, you've been able to buy uh, a, a Samsung phone that contains a quantum random number generator. Has that sold like hotcakes? Well, I think it's sold to some extent, but again, it's perhaps a bit of a gimmick at the moment. And the market pull is not there to really commercialize that. But certainly Samsung have been offering a QRNG built into one of their phones. So at the minute, I don't think there is the pull to say, yes, we're going to take the next step and, and do QKD from phone to receiver in the wall. But the technology is just about there. I think it's going to need an Innovate UK industry-led project or two. To, to show that it's really commercializable, so to move it up in technology readiness level of a few more levels and turn it into a proper working demonstrator. But I think the, the capability is there to do that. But I think people need to know that there is market pull at the end of it in order to take the plunge and do it. So, so that's where we've got to with that. I think our work is done. I don't think there's much more we can do in terms of innovation at this point. In the future, maybe you would use entanglement or a genuine single photon quantum dot source or something in the handheld device. But there's seem, you know, I think there's got to be enough of a pull to make that a viable R&D project in the first place. So I think we're waiting now for, for the market to show more interest in that. Is there a real demand for quantum security in terms of QKD built into future handheld devices? And if so, I think the technology will will be there and it will be able to work. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to see what the, the market dynamics are for that and the adoption likelihood. Uh, definitely should see what happens in the UK.
We were going to fast forward a bit, but I thought actually there was a few papers that I wanted to ask you about. And rather than going through them all, there's one which was particularly interesting for me around controlled swap tests for determining quantum entanglement. I wondered if you could uh, just give us a, like the abstract for that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is interesting because it actually goes all the way back to when I was at, at HP Labs. In when I was at HP Labs, there were three of us inside HP: myself and Bill Munro and Ray Beausoleil, and an external collaborator, Vim Van Dam, who was a research fellow at the time. And so we, it was already known that if you got two copies of a quantum state and you do this controlled swap test on those two copies you could work out if those copies were identical or not so you can do a test to find out whether the two quantum states are the same and that involved one control one extra control quantum bit that you use and in the end you measure that control quantum bit and that tells you stuff about the two quantum states that you've got if those quantum states are multi-component so they're multiple photons or multiple qubits of some sort then if you do a different sort of control swap test where you actually have one control per component in the the state so if you've got if you've got just a bipartite state with two photons or two qubits you just need two controls but if it's three you need three if you use that many controls then instead of finding out whether the states are identical you can find out whether those two states have any entanglement in them or not so you can develop a protocol where you interact with your external control qubits and you do some quantum gates and in the end you measure your external control bits and the information you get out of those external things tells you whether there's any entanglement in the situation. So that that is interesting because it, entanglement is a resource, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit about this in a minute. And so it's nice to have a quick test as to whether stuff really is entangled or not. So if it's just two, if it's just two photons or whatever, you can do a Bell test, and that'll tell you whether you've got entanglement or not. But if it's more than two, then the tests for entanglement get more and more complicated and possibly uh, less efficient to do. So anything you can do which gives you a test that might give a signature of entanglement, certainly when you go to multiple qubits, is rather interesting. So inside HP, we came up with this idea. But what we did was patent it at the time. And so it patents go on public record once they're granted. So it was out there as information. But in fact, no one had really published very much on it. So so much more recently, I had a project student to begin with work on that. And she came up with some nice results. And then actually, she went off to do a PhD with a, a collaborator of mine. And so this paper on the controlled swap test emerged from that work, and we published that. But now there are quite a few papers out there on the controlled swap test for entanglement and all sorts of related things. So it's actually, it's a potentially interesting way forward that may even be a, a useful test because if you've got a big quantum state, you can always do tomography on it to, to find out exactly what that state is. But tomography is very inefficient. 
in that if you've got many quantum bits in your so if you've got a large quantum computer state and you want to check has it got all the entanglements in that i think it has checking that it's got all of that by tomography is incredibly inefficient so any useful information you can get from more efficient ways of looking at quantum states is really very handy because in the end you don't want to do full tomography unless you have to so the control swap test is interesting from a kind of fundamental view but it also actually might be quite interesting in the end as a, as a practical test or in certain quantum situations i know that the control swap test is important especially in quantum machine learning where they use it as a way to devise a distance metric so you can load classical data and you can compute the distance between the two vectors and you can use it for distinguishability and things like that that's right i mean it's kind of a little primitive in the same way that i suppose teleportation or something is in it's a tool that i think has applications in various places and so i think it's quite cute that it can be it in in this guy's used as an entanglement test but i agree it can be used in other places in quantum information as well question about the quality of the entanglement is it affected by performing these controlled swap gates is, is it likely that you could lose some of the fidelity or the, the quality of the entanglement no i well in in the ideal case i think it's fine because you don't measure your the the thing is you don't tinker with your entangled states other than getting them to interact with the control you end up measuring the control qubits and so they will tell you about about the rest of it if things are not perfect and you end up with a bit of residual entanglement between your control stuff and the states of interest, then when you measure the control qubits, you will damage the the entangled state. So you won't be able to then pass it on in the same way. But you can also, I mean, it's, but when you do a Bell test, you basically completely trash that entangled pair. So when you do a Bell test, you take what you assume is a nice random sample of many entangled pairs that are coming along and maybe you want to choose your random sample with a QRNG to make sure you pick a genuinely random sample. But you take that random sample and you analyze that and those samples will have been destroyed in the analysis process, but you assume that the ones that you didn't select for analysis are, if it's a faithful sample, will be going along as perfectly entangled pairs to be used. So normally, it's this kind of sampling thing. Now, in principle, with the controlled swap test, if you've got ideal states and so on, you can maybe get away with actually using the stuff that you've tested, which is even better. But but in reality, there will always be some level of decoherence. So I think you have to do proper analysis to see whether you should be using the damaged ones or just using the ones that you haven't selected as your test sample. Yeah, got it. Okay. So we were talking about future directions for the quantum initiatives in the UK. I'd like to hear your perspectives of what technologies could emerge. And specifically, one that I'm interested in is in distributed quantum computing and maybe some thoughts you have about, is that possible? Is that the future of quantum computing? How's, how far away are we? Uh, quite a lot of questions there. So let me say the last one first. I still think we're quite a way away from proper substantial distributed quantum computing i think i mean as i said there is a competition for 
the next phase hubs that will start at the end of this year. I think EPSRC have already indicated the areas that they expect to be funding hubs in, and I think it's pretty clear that they will be funding hubs that will support various forms of sensing and imaging and continuing in that direction. But with relation to your question, I think they're going to be supporting hubs that continue to work on quantum computing and continue to work on the next generation of quantum communications, which I think is probably better called quantum networking because it's going to focus much more on entanglement distribution. So I think within the national program, there's an expectation that they will be funding things in those areas. And, and I think that's probably clear because they also are establishing, well, I mean, it exists as an entity. I don't think the building is open yet, but we have a national quantum computing center that's going to live on the Harwell campus just south of Oxford. And so there, there will actually be a building that includes various forms of quantum computing technology, but also I clearly is going to interact with other things that are going on elsewhere in the UK and in the national program. So I think it's, it, I, I can't imagine that the next phase, so we don't know what hubs are going to be funded yet exactly, but I'm pretty sure there are going to be hubs funded that will be pursuing further aspects of quantum computing and also entanglement distribution and quantum networking. And if you take those two things and put them together, then clearly you have the capability of connecting quantum computers that are physically separate from each other, but also you have the ability to enable remote access via an entanglement channel or teleportation channel, whatever you want to call it, to a large quantum computer that's located somewhere else in the country. So I think those two things will be enabled, but I don't think they're going to happen within the first couple of years of the next phase of the national program. I think that's more a target goal for we will have demonstrated the next aspects of uh, towards this by the end of the five years. I think that's a more realistic target so i don't think i mean it's known already which hubs are under evaluation so that's on the upsrc website and i don't think anyone has claimed that they're going to connect together to large quantum computers over distance within the uk in the next five years i think that would be too ambitious i think we've got to demonstrate the entanglement distribution can be done robustly and stored for some long enough period of time that you can utilize it or you can error correct it or whatever. So I think those are the kind of goals that are going to be addressed in the next five years. And given that the program is looking like it's going to be invested in for longer than five years, I think people are already talking about goals in 10 years time. And I think you're looking more at 10 years timescale for, for the, the genuine blind quantum computing or distributed quantum computing or whatever. But but I, I think there's going to be a strong expectation of entanglement distribution and utilization in some way in the next five years. And that's a really uh, good segue onto that because it's, as you just described there, uh, like a building block of 
distributed computing, but also remote sensing, I believe. So maybe let's focus a bit on entanglement distribution. And in the reading I've done, it feels like that it's about sending the entangled photons over the network and then ultimately storing them somehow. And there are many different techniques in there, both in the storage and also the distribution of them. Of course, using a point-to-point -point link is a very basic approach, just like you would in a point-to-point -point QKD connection, you're exchanging the photons using pulses of light. But when you come to a, a, a network which isn't point-to-point, -point, all of a sudden you open a can of worms. In, in traditional networking, you need to start thinking about protocols. You need to think about maybe an additional layer of addressing. Let's dive into that for a little bit. Where are we with entanglement distribution? What's your viewpoint on? I guess the, the top use cases that will be tested in the next five years or focused on and what other building blocks are there within, it's a system, isn't it? Entanglement distribution is a system of things happening across a network is the way I understand it. Yeah. I mean, at, at the moment, I think what's been done is really just point to point. I mean, you, you can do it in, you can do it involving multiple points though. So certainly within the hub, even in phase two, in in our hub partner, the University of Bristol, they have used a very bright entangled pair source, which actually produces pairs at different frequencies or wavelengths. And you can split those off. And so rather than just Alice and Bob, you can send certain pairs between Alice and Bob and others between Charlie and Dave and so on. And so I think they've got up to distributing entanglement between 16 different users now. So you can distribute it in a point to point way, but using multiple points, not just two. So that's quite nice, which means you've got the facility for networking together more than just two people that way. I should also mention that you can do more than bipartite entanglement so you can have you can entangle together more than just two photons and you can distribute that entanglement to multiple users as well and that's also been demonstrated uh, at Heriot Watt University so so the building blocks of distributing pairwise entanglement to multiple users or multipartite entanglement are just about there but at the minute there's not been really any significant storage involved in those experiments and i agree with you there are different ways if you're going to distribute entanglement over longer distances then there are protocols where you store it and purify it or there are protocols where you if you like use an error correcting code and instead of sending just one qubit the one entangled qubit is encoded into multiple qubits and then it's error protected in some way. So you can either send things using error correction codes or you can store them and then purify them. Either way, you need some modest quantum processing to do that. And I would say at the minute, we're not really there with that. People have done some basic experiments in various places in the world that show some of that in principle will work, but I don't think... I don't think you can identify yet and say that this is the technology that you're going to use for the memory or the processing. I think there are various kinds. I'm pretty sure everyone agrees that if you're going to send entanglement over distance, you're going to be using light. You're going to be using photons. It's hard to see what else 
you can use over significant distances. But so, so I think that's the one thing people agree on that you'll use light and it might be free space to satellites or from satellites and it may be through fiber on terrestrial based stuff. But what will be used for the memory and what will be used for the processing, I think, is still very much up for grabs. And in the end, it may well be. I mean, if you're free space, you can use frequencies other than telecom wavelengths. If you're going to be sending down fiber, you almost certainly want to use telecom wavelengths in which if you want to go over long distance, in which case the telecom wavelength may force on you whatever you need to use for memory and processing or else you have to do frequency conversion to some other uh, frequency and then process and store at that and then convert back so there are options and people have shown frequency conversion can work but i don't think yet at the fidelities and efficiencies they would really like so it, you know what you use for the processing and memory depends on the frequency of light that's got to come in and come out again and that may be telecom it may be other wavelengths and we talked about distributed quantum computing if it's two quantum computers in different fridges in the same lab you can probably get away without having to convert to telecom wavelengths to communicate over that distance so you can send whatever frequency photons interact with these qubits that are in the quantum processors if you want to go over longer distance, you've probably got a frequency convert. So distributed quantum computing, I think, means different things to different people. It's whether it's distributed over something the size of a data center somewhere or whether it's distributed on a country scale. And if it's the latter, almost certainly you're going to have to use telecom wavelength entanglement to, to get from one to the other. If it's just across a room or a data center, then probably you can get away without having to convert. So I think at the minute there are all sorts of open questions about what what memories and what processors to use and I think the phase three investigations in whatever hubs are going to be funded in the UK will investigate that and tell us a lot about what are the best candidates and where that should be going but but I don't think we have the answers already and we just know which ones to develop so I think there has to be a level of investigation in the next phase hubs which is probably why they i think they may be called research hubs for that very reason i think they've got to they've got to stay relatively low trl because i think there are open questions down there that need to be answered before you can decide what it is you want to push towards commercialization can i just check trl it sounds like an acronym i haven't heard technology readiness level sorry oh it sounds like there's a framework for that of some kind yeah yeah you can google it and there's a whole set it basically runs from one up to eight nine but zero is basically fundamental research and anything above that is going towards technology that's ready for commercialization so one thing that came to mind in hearing you talk through that was of course in my research I've it seems that memories are maybe one of the furthest away kind of technologies and needs a lot of research for any kind of memories which are going to be usable in in the real world. In which case, are, are there use cases which can leverage um, distributed entanglement in real time without the need for memories? And in that case, what's the what complexities are there at play? 
I guess timing is the biggest one, but yeah, I mean, it, you're going to need accurate timing over if you're doing stuff over distance. You've always got to have accurate timing supporting it because if entanglement is being shared over distance, you've got to identify the right bits of each entangled pair. So normally you can do that through timing information. So, so I think undoubtedly you're going to need, you're going to need very good distributed timing. And, and I think there are activities in the UK to push that, not just for the purposes of wanting GPS resilience. I think it's very good to have accurate time distributed in other ways besides GPS. So certainly there's activity to support that. So if we take that as red, if we assume there is accurate timing information, then I think the the things that spring to mind that you could do without necessarily having to store entanglement for a significant period, I think, well, certainly QKD, if you're going to distribute entanglement over distance, you can do, if I say it flippantly, nicer QKD based on entanglement. So you can, if you can certify you've got entanglement over distance with a bell test, you can then use that entanglement to establish shared keys over distance. And, and essentially you measure the entangled photons immediately when they arrive. So you don't necessarily need to store them unless you want to go multiple hops. If you want to go multiple hops, then you need something which involves storage or repeater type technology in the middle in order to be able to enable multiple hops. But if you're only going to go over one hop, you can use that entanglement essentially instantly to establish shared keys. The other thing you might be able to do, I mean, you mentioned sensors over distance. So I think there are certain quantum advantages that can be achieved. If you have two separate quantum sensors separated over a significant distance, you can get a quantum advantage by connecting those two sensors together in a quantum way rather than just having them communicate with each other classically so they measure their information. So if it's light coming from a star or you're trying to sense gravitational waves or some other field or something, if you measure locally and then just compare your results with classical communication, you can get an advantage over that, I think, if you can communicate from one sensor to the other effectively with an entangled channel. So you may be able to utilize entanglement in those kinds of situations by also making your measurements over distance and effectively teleporting one thing to the other place without having to store for significant periods. It may be also remote access to a quantum computer where someone is inputting whatever it is they want to solve over a, a quantum channel rather than a classical channel. Maybe you can essentially use the entanglement to input your stuff and perhaps get your results back without having to store for a long period of time. But within, if you've got two large quantum computers and you want them to talk to each other over distance, I would expect you've probably got to involve some kind of memory and buffering and, and things there. It would be hard to see how you could do everything instantly for that because running a quantum algorithm in a distributed way, I mean, the algorithm usually has things that have to be done in some kind of ordering, in which case you can't 
necessarily do some bits in advance or even if you do you've still got to store the results so i think memory would be more important in that distributed quantum computing sense but that certainly just key distribution or remote or enhanced sensing i think you would be able to get away with without memory because i would agree with you at the minute i think memory is, is in need of significant further development and i would certainly expect that phase three of the uk national program will have some focus on the next stages of memory development at, at various frequencies or wavelengths one thing that comes to mind is we've already mentioned it is the protocol stack so even if we have the capability of storing entanglement for long periods of time there's the whole missing component i think the software what do you think about that is that that easier to do than the hardware the hardware is easier than the software because of course the software is probably easier because it's classical but it takes coordination and standards and that's also time consuming maybe the hardware takes 10 years but standardizing takes 10 years too yeah i mean i i think at the minute standardization i mean that there has been a lot of work just in the qkd arena on standards over many years i mean it was kind of started by etsy i would say over 10 years ago now and certainly other standards bodies worldwide have now picked up and there are multiple standards bodies almost competing with each other in the qkd arena for putting in place standards i think other quantum technologies are behind on that and fair enough because the technologies of are less developed commercially and so on. But I think there is now competition, which I hope doesn't end up turning into unhealthy competition in various standards bodies to consider standards now for other technologies like computing and so on. I think there are arguments that some of that may be a bit premature, but people always like to get their ore in first with standards if they can, so that those standards are adopted and, and it might give them commercial advantage. I agree standards are a lot of work and I think there are there are some countries that are more coordinated than the UK in their attendance of standards bodies so we might send along one person and they send along 10 and so I think I mean it's a difficult one because in the UK academics don't really do much standards work because so we'll have, I give advice to 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 various standards body discussions when I'm asked to, but I don't do any work writing standards because as an academic, I don't think that is something that's regarded as part of your job description and we've got 10 other things to do. So there's always a question of who's going to make the effort. So in the UK, we have people at the National Physical Laboratory who do an awful lot of hard work on standards, and that's good. And you get people in industry who will work on standards if they think that's relevant to their company progressing commercially. So whereas I think elsewhere in the world, there's perhaps more investment of government effort actually funding people specifically to do standards work. So that's probably something we need to look at in the UK. I think we do attend and contribute to standards discussions, but maybe we need to do that with a bit more weight in the future. If it looks like quantum standards are going to get driven from elsewhere, then we may well have we may well have to make more effort 
to make sure that UK technology and industry contributions get the appropriate representation that, that they need on standards bodies. Yeah, makes sense. Thanks, Tim. This is fascinating. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. I'd like to ask you about next steps. Next steps for you and next steps for the communications hub. I mean, you've already mentioned that there's research centers as perhaps the phase three next phase. Anything else you'd like to add to that? And yeah, a bit about your next steps and perhaps the University of York as well, if there's anything you want to comment on there. Yeah, no, I'm happy to to comment. So, I mean, it's clear that there will be new hubs that start at the end of this year. I think it will be, well, both very surprising to me, but also very disappointing if there isn't one that is going to do a significant amount of work on quantum network. So I fully expect that to that to carry forward. I mentioned EPSRC have indicated they expect quantum computing networking and so on to carry on in phase three. So I think there's a strong expectation that will happen. And I certainly expect the University of York to be uh, significantly involved in next phase hub or hubs that are, are working in that area. I'm not going to be leading a hub, uh, but you know, that's my decision. I think 10 years is is a good, very good innings and stint. And I think it's good to have a turnover of people after a while. And in any case, I'm effectively getting to retirement age now. So it's my intention in phase three to be more involved in advisory roles. So I still intend to do some research, but I am not going to be leading a hub because I think we need people we need people with new ideas and who can pick up leadership challenge. I don't think people should be leading things into their 70s. So so it, it's not my intention to lead a hub for another five years. And I've already made that clear. But I fully expect the work that's been done for the last 10 years in the quantum communications hub to, to be transferring significantly into phase three and continuing. So... So it won't be me that's leading it, but I expect most of the most of the activities will continue through. And aside from those that are tech transferring out, I think the the other ones will be picked up and transfer into phase three. And and I certainly intend to be giving advisory input and so on, but I'm not going to be leading it. Yes, uh, well done. You're right. A good innings. <laughs> The serious impact to UK academia around uh, quantum communications and also a key part of the, the value chain and to commercialization, as you mentioned, props for that. Yeah. Any further comments? I, th- I guess I'd like to try and wrap up now, but a good stage to do that. Yeah. No, the time went surprisingly quickly. So, so no, I mean, I think in conclusion, I'd just like to see that the UK national program continues to prosper i mean i think it it as i said it has been much admired worldwide i think in the first 10 years and rightly so because i think we've done a lot of things right and i hope we learn from the things that we haven't done right or could do better and so i do hope that the uk national program goes from strength to strength the only other thing i'd mention which i think is a worldwide problem in it that we all need to address is skills and training. If we're going to have an expanding new industry, and this is as true for 
AI based things as it is for quantum as it is for whatever you've got to put in place sufficient skills and training and bring through people who will be able to support an expanded in our case quantum industry and that is something that I know UK government is conscious of as well and so at the same time as doing the new R&D and developing the technologies and services and so on we've got to skill and train sufficient people that they will be able to fill all the jobs that get created so so that's one thing to watch i think and it's certainly written into the national program but the intent to solve that problem and actually solving it are two different things and it's not just a matter of throwing money at it because you have to find the people which probably means bringing them through from schools into universities and changing all of that I think in a lot of high tech areas if we want to if we want to be a high tech nation in many years time then I think we've got to make sure that we get all of the education in place so that we pull people through and train them right the way through so they can then fill these positions so that's something to watch I think yeah it's a cultural shift as well right when it comes to stem through all ages as you say because you need to spark the interest early on for sure yeah agreed and so you know we try to do we have outreach we try to infuse people when they're young and and i very much admire the people who go out into the media and and do this on a regular basis because i think that's essential because we do have to do that otherwise we'll have the technology and i still think it'll get exploited more uh, elsewhere in the world let me wrap up then. Thank you very much, Tim. Appreciate it. Very nice speaking to you. Goodbye for now. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain, especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. And I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word. It would really help us out.